Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critical Thinking, a Critical Role rewatch podcast. I am your host, John Bates, and with me today is Jack. Hey, everybody, I'm Jack. Alt and F4Gamers on Twitter. Yep. And Jeremy. Hi, I'm Jeremy Thomas, uh, J Thomas for One One Mania on Twitter. And I am at John A. Bates on Twitter. And we are, a, as we as we talked about last last week, uh, we are a bunch of writing geeks and GMs and uh, Critical Role watchers and fans uh, who took it upon ourselves to sit upon the large stick of artistic uh, critique um, and uh, take, take about the task of taking Critical Role to task for their narrative uh, writing and decisions in the hit online role-playing stream series critical role for those of you that don't know critical well, for those of you that don't know why you starting on episode two but uh critical role is a online dnd uh, dnd uh, stream that started uh, back in 2015 on the geek and sundry web on the geek and sundry twitch channel twitch.tv slash geek and sundry uh, and is archived on their youtube channel and website where wherein a bunch of voice actors sit around playing Dungeons and Dragons and they've brought their home campaign onto the internet for all to see. Um, last week, uh, last week we talked about the first episode, uh, chapter one, arrival at Craghammer. And today we're talking about the second episode, uh, into the Gracebind mines. So, uh, the beginning of all of these uh, episodes start with a character intro recap, which we talked about last week, and they're going to and we're going to continue referencing them until they stop. When they stop, you'll understand why I, in particular, am irritated that they exist. <laughs> <laughs> you mean we're not um, going to spend another twenty five minutes talking about them in, in depth it, again? It, it ended up being thirty, and no. <laughs> um, but. Our cast of characters are Matthew Mercer as Dungeon Masters, Orion Akaba as Tiberius Stormwind, Laura Bailey as Vexalia, uh, Talazan Jaffe as Percy, la 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 la. Uh, Liam O'Brien. Yes, the role of the third. Uh, Liam O'Brien as Vaxil Dawn, Marisha Ray as Keyleth, Sam Regal as Scanlan, and Travis Willingham as Grog. Um, Last time, uh, Vox Machina had been hired by their friend Arcanist Alora Visorin to head towards the dwarven town of Craghammer, as a good friend of hers had gone missing, a halfling paladin named Lady Kima of Vord. Uh, when they arrived, they were sort of got taken about uh, a little bit by the guards of the town, but quickly found themselves, uh, you know, navigating through town successfully and eventually end up talking to Lord Nostok Grayspine, the head of the Grayspine Mines, where Lady Kima supposedly disappeared. After their conversation with him, a bunch of mon hideous monsters sprang from the mines, attacking the workers, uh, goblins, ogres, and then some sort of Naga-based Hydra abomination. They uh, fought the beast, killed the beast, and that is where last week's episode ended off, with Scanlan dealing the final blow, Scanlan the gnomish bard, dealing the final blow with a lightning bolt. And so we pick up 
uh, here in episode two uh, at the beginning, which is right after the battle with the creature. Uh, Nostok Grayspine invited the group back to his office to continue their conversation that was uh, previously sort of semi-interrupted. I think they had sort of finished off the conversation and then things happened and they came back to officially finish off the conversation. Yes. Um, at which point we realized that the players, not necessarily the characters, but the players don't have very good memory. Uh, as they proceed to ask questions they had already <laughs> asked and received answers to last week, a um, common factor I would say in many pretty, RPGs. yeah, <laughs> pretty, pretty, pretty common. But you know what? That works because when we're looking at this in an episodic format, that's exactly what you would do on a TV show. Right. Yes, you would constantly you would be making references back. Typically on a TV show, you start about five minutes prior to the end of the previous episode. If it's if it's like a connected series of episodes, that's mm-hmm. that's fairly common. So that's not yeah. necessarily a problem, uh, except for the people watching who have memories like you know bear traps and know this right. stuff already and starting right. more for yeah for the for the, for the more <laughs> modern day viewer where binge watching is more the status quo rather than the odd man out. This sort of thing is is something to consider. Yeah. And especially if you're writing a story like this, a sort of an episodic story, you do want to be aware that there is going to be a certain subsection of your audience that is watching a whole season at a time. Um, and so it's not always necessary to do a recap at the beginning, but in this case, as a weekly episodic thing, it's not a bad deal. No. Um Anyway, so they uh, continue. Uh, they continue their uh, uh, conversation. Nostok admits that these intrusions have been bad for business and accepts their help, offering a reward of twenty-five thousand gold plus a two hundred fifty gold bounty on the head of any creature that they happen to kill or any scalp they happen to bring back, which is important later. Yes. Um, they seal the deal and with a drink, uh, which uh, uh, Percy manages to convince Nostok that uh, through a very, you know, a very middling but apparently good enough uh persuasion role uh that um they typically in their land seal seal a deal with a drink um immediately trying to get take back the drink that they had gifted to him in the previous episode <laughs> um, which they which the the characters do have reason for because part of the negotiations in order to get where they're going had hinged on being able to eventually share some of this thistle branch dark blood wine with people who they had had to negotiate with so which they th- never do which they pro- <laughs> yeah which they never end up actually doing but that is why you know the the characters yeah. in their minds have reason to be trying to not yep. just leave all of this dark blood wine in Nostok's possession because it's true. in their minds they still have to give it to some other people too yep it's true did, although i'm one although i'm half wondering if while that would be the narrative reason i'm half wondering if the actual reason wasn't just they knew that he needed some and forgot why right <laughs> could have gone Quite either way possibly what I like about this, that that whole conversation, because there's several points in there, is it gives um, – we're still not, like, super heavy into, obviously, the, the show or the storyline. We're just barely into the second episode. Um, so things haven't gotten super serious. The stakes have not gotten particularly high. So it gives you these opportunities to 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 show a lot more moments of levity that we saw a lot of in the first episode 
which is important because if you start off a show uh, or or a storyline with everything being particularly heavy and particularly serious, you never get the chance to fall in love with the characters. Um, True. And a lot of a lot of these jokes that go on early on, there's that. There's you know the jokes about Grog and his hole from the, from the the very early part of uh, the episode before they they head up to Nostock. Um, some of the stuff that happens a little bit later, like Keyleth trying to be a dwarf and being worse at it than Tiberius, which we'll get to, um, really give you a chance to sort of uh, in, become engaged with these characters and appreciate them. Yeah, right. And it cements them as real people as opposed yeah. to sort of a perfect image, which is something that a lot of stories have difficulty with. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of television and books and uh, other media have difficulty realizing these characters in a way that doesn't make them seem unrelatable. Yep. Right. Um, yeah. A lot of the things that they do and say and, you know, the silly mistakes that happen, the reason why some of us, you know, feel uncomfortable watching them is because it's so real and relatable. And it's it's when I I find that when you can make a when you can make a person uncomfortable just by making a silly mistake, um, that shows that you you form sort of a a close enough uh, facsimile of a real person that they can connect there. Yes. Right, because um, because if somebody you don't care about messes up, you don't care. You don't care. Right, right. But when somebody you are actually invested in, you know, a character that you are bonding with, when they have a problem, when they take a risk and fail at it, that investment is why you feel bad. Yeah, yeah. It's the difference between an eye roll and like wanting to hide your face from those awkward moments. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Uh, all right. right, so uh, they, you know, uh, Vaxildon steals some of the wine while they're getting it out to drink with the help of Scanlan, who is uh, bugging Nostok intentionally with some gnomish music, uh, sort of showing what kind of character he is. They then uh, <laughs> leave his office uh, and go to look for Foreman Harris, whom they had been told about uh, previously, I think from Nostok himself. Uh, yes. as somebody who could give them a little bit more information on the creatures that they were going to be dealing with and on the mines themselves. They go and find Foreman Harris while taking a short rest, and um, they he's sort of a very gregarious character. Um, Matthew Mercer busts out his West Country accent uh, <laughs> for, for this character. And, um, or points nearby. <laughs> yep. West Country is the dialect name. Yes. Um and uh, they have a really sort of a sort of a sort of a sit down and meet and greet conversation style with Harris, who's very forthcoming. They learn a little bit more about the city, about uh, sort of what the, a little bit about dwarven society. Um, they get a map for the mine. They learn what kind of creatures have been coming out. Importantly, that uh, Tiberius. So as they're talking about these creatures, and and Harris is describing various uh, mutated and changed creatures, creatures that seem to have been you know, pulled apart and stapled back together in strange varieties. Uh, Scanlan makes a, uh, a um, goblin centipede joke. Um, and, the first of uh, many. As you Tiber- should. Yep. And uh, Tiberius suggests it's the work of necromancy, but Harris says that the creatures are still alive. They're not actually, they don't seem to be dead. They seem to be alive and stitched together, right. um, which 
may make things worse. Um, they give him a map, and there's a few things. Uh, there's a, um, some more comedy bits here, um, just with the with the interactions between the group, and uh, again with some people reiterating questions for information that they previously already had. Yep. Uh, and and I think my favorite part of this particular bit was uh, sort of tells this, the relationship Scanlan has with the rest of the group. Um, because Scanlan uh, killed the the creature at the end of the last episode. Yes. Um, and so Grog and Tiberius sort of play up Scanlan a bit in this conversation for no real benefit, but they just do it because they, you know, they're proud of their friend. Um, and at the end when, you know, Harris, who very obviously doesn't get a lot of visitors and is enjoying the company, you know, offers them, you know, they, they can stay if they like, however long they like. And he sort of makes a, I'm not sure what prompts the comment, but he makes the comment to Scanlan that Scanlan can sit in his lap and he can pat his head. <laughs> yes. Uh, to which, to which Kalen to which Kalen responds, "I've killed." I've killed. <laughs> uh, which sort of <laughs> reminds Harris, "Oh, that's right, you know." And um, Tiberius just very off casually says, "This one needs a whore." Right. Um, <laughs> which you know sort of really cements that corner of the group in my mind, and you know yeah. provides a bit of humor. Yeah, it does. Um, um, oh, go ahead. No, uh, I was going okay. to move on. So if you had something um, to touch on. Well, the, w- the other thing that I think that a lot of the information gathering does, and we saw some of it uh, in in the previous episode too, but it's a nice way, you know, the characters already have this motivation to go down into this, into the, um, into the, the Underdark to go after uh, Lady Kima. Um here, uh, Matt, Matt very kind of smoothly inserts the um, the 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 weird monstrosities thing that is going down there. Throws in some financial incentive in order to to hook the more mercenary members of the party. Uh, throws in a little bit of magic to 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 entice Tiberius. And for characters like Grog, there's just the opportunity to just destroy things. So it's a really, really slick way of taking the one transit, the one quest that they already had, layering this other one over it, which will become significantly important down the line. Um, and, and sort of just at raising the stakes early on. Yeah, and as far as character motivation go, um, you know, you've got the the basic, you know, why each of these individuals um, want to pursue this. Um, and obviously, uh, Alora Vysorin has been only referenced. Nobody's met her. Um, you know, looking at the series as a whole, she is a much more important character to the overarching narrative than any of us have really been uh, able to to visualize at this point, because from a viewer's perspective in the first two um, in the first two episodes, you know, you're really your most important NPC is probably Nostok Gracebine. Um, you know, he's he's the one who's letting them in. He's the one who offers them, you know, the most money. Um, he's, he's sort of taking the, the role of the, the guy who's sort of funding this expedition at this point. Um, 
but over but overall he's a he's a far less uh vital npc vital character to the narrative than Alora and Kima will be later on but right now he's he's kind of a spotlight npc yeah yeah um so they finish dealing with Foreman Harris and head out um Harris giving them a map of the mines, which was just a GM tool, tool that Matt had made, but they asked for one and he happened to have one, so he handed them that map. Um, before going to sleep, uh, they, they decided that they were going to go get some potions to stock up, and somewhere in the conversation, Tiberius seemed to make them all think that House Thunderbrand had potions to sell. Um, <laughs> oh, I, Tiberius. I watched I watched this bit and I listened to it and I had subtitles on and I saw the words they were saying and I still don't know how they got that confused. Well, and speaking of Tiberius, also, this is the first time uh, before we leave Harris's uh, location, this is the first time we see the scroll of transcription, mm-hmm. um, yes. which is basically something that Tiberius has crafted over time. And as you develop the character of Tiberius, you find... You know, and it's hinted at as well uh, in his character introduction, uh, which we should cover in some detail. I think we should cover those. No, uh, but <laughs> you know, I will I, mute you forever. <laughs> <laughs> but Tiberius's character is centered a lot around magical artifacts, magical objects, and things that that he can either craft or employ. You know, he's he's mm-hmm. kind of a gear based. Uh, a character, you know, and the <clears throat> scroll of transcription is basically, you know, that's it's the Arcanist version of being able to to IM somebody more or less. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so either way, they, you know, Tiberius convinces them all to go to House Thunderbrand together, <clears throat> and they go. Uh, Vax attempts to walk straight up to the door and gets blasted back by blue energy. The same thing that happened to uh, Tiberius last time. Um, Tiberius tries to cast Dispel Magic, but has no effect. We also start to see uh, hints of, in this area in particular, um, and sort of in the last scene, we start to see aspects of the players trying to game the system. Mm-hmm. Um, and trying to bargain with the GM at, about certain things, um, which has no real narrative impact, but it's something that we'll, I think we'll, we'll probably touch on a few times over the course mm-hmm. of this because we're all GMs and we've all had that experience of a player, you know, stopping a session to argue with you about the mechanics of a thing, uh, whether or <laughs> not it's a correct argument, still sort of like bringing a pause to the storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, this, that's also, something... this also introduces the, the very first appearance of Vox Machina's most, most greatest adversary ever, a door. Doors. Yeah. Yes. Doors, doors defeat them a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, it has to do, <laughs> mostly it has to do with the fact that they always try to do the most complicated thing in any given situation. <laughs> Well, and and here's here's the thing, you know, because we are looking at uh, a an activity that's often heralded as as an excellent narratively structured uh, action that you can take, you know. And one key piece of advice that I always offer to GMs going forward is, if you're attempting to compose a story you have to have control over the events that transpire. Otherwise, 
the story becomes the slave of the dice rather than the dice simply making the story more interesting. Yep. Um, so if it's something that has to happen for the narrative to progress in the way that you as the GM want it to, don't leave the decision up to the dice. If the, if the party needs to get through the door and the struggle with the door is not a narratively interesting factor don't leave it up to the dice as to whether or not they'll get through the door simply get them through the door yeah and in this particular case i don't think that's the issue but that is certainly the issue later on down the line right um in situations like this where you know talking with lord uh, with uh, lord thunderbrand and establishing a good rapport with him it's not vital for the story to continue that they make a good impression with thunderbrand So it's perfectly legitimate to just see what the dice have happen and make it entertaining whether they succeed Mm -hmm. or fail. And And that's what ends up happening. It provides a good potential learning lesson for the characters as well. Right. Mm -hmm. It certainly does. As while the group is arguing about the best way to approach the door, Scanlan summons an unseen servant right next to the door who then knocks on the door. Um, Again... Every like like they were trying to uh, fly a magic carpet. There was dispel magic. Other magical uh, suggestions were made, and Scanlan just like we need to knock the door. Knock on the door, right? Unseen servant, knock on the door. Um, Kind of shows who has the who has (laughs) sort of shows the thought process of the group as a whole. Mm -hmm. Um, The unseen servant knocks on the door. It's answered by a elderly dwarf named Lord Thunderbrand. Uh, who comes out and Tiberius immediately begins to talk and Thunderbrand silences him uh, and begins to talk with the rest of the group while Tiberius continues to talk as if he's not silent or not. He continues to talk without saying anything because he's silenced, um, which Orion Akaba very good at doing. The, yeah, uh, no, uh, that, honestly, that was one of his. Point. Yeah, no, I was, I was I'm very entertained with Orion as a as an actor. Um, and as a, as a performer, you know, and this was, was, I think while watching the episode, the first time where I was like, Oh, he, no, he, 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 he owned it and ran with it. And it was, yeah, great. yeah. Yep. It was, it was good. He's, he's just continuing to mime talking while under the silence spell and everybody just continues the scene around him as if he's not there. <laughs> and it's perfect. Uh, narratively just. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great performance art moment. Yeah, and it's yeah. And it, and, and, yeah, and it really it encapsulates the idea that he does this all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. So they continue the conversation. The rest of the group continues the conversation, talking with um, uh, well, Thunderbrand, basically trying to A, get potions out of him, B, get information out of him. Uh, Tiberius eventually gets the silent spell removed and makes an impassioned plea about you know, saying uh, that we need, you know, we could very much use your help trying to deal with these arcane monstrosities in the mines, to which they are very firmly uh, refused because none of them are dwarves. Uh, so Lord Thunderbrand turns around and Tiberius casts Alter Self on Keyleth, which I'm not sure if that spell works that way. But regardless, <laughs> uh, he turns Keyleth into a dwarf. And, and we, we are treated to... <laughs> Marisha Ray's complete amazing, amazing, amazing attempt. <laughs> yes. Marisha Ray, Marisha Ray has the same Scottish accent that your drunk friend who thinks he's Irish but isn't actually Irish has. Right, and and without being drunk, right, right. 
I mean, it's just Marisha Ray can't do an Irish or Scotch accent or is very good at pretending she can't do a Scotch or Irish accent. When you're doing an accent that bad, it's real. Just as a a person who does a lot of accents, that was a real performance there. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, Accents are my thing, and uh, I could tell. Uh, But it provides provides another, again, great little character moment because, I mean, we've seen a little bit how up to this point – how Keyleth sort of is, but like in the first episode, you know, Keyleth and Percy sort of, sort of took a backseat to the other characters a little bit. Um, this is the first time we really like, really, really get to see awkward Keyleth. Mm-hmm. And awkward Keyleth commits. Yes. She's not awkward so because she's, she, she's not trying. She's awkward because she's trying terribly, terribly, terribly hard and just can't pull it off. Yep. Yes. Uh, it's, it's the best kind of awkward. It's the, it is the best um, kind of awkward in my opinion. And very natural. So, but the, the group failed, like, the, the, the dwarf, the powerful arcane caster somehow sees through the arcane illusion. Um, <laughs> because Alter Self is not an actual transformation. It's a, uh, it's just an illusion. Um, and uh, the, he, he turns them away, stubs them away multiple times. Scanlan eventually uh, offers any magical artifacts that they might find as a reward, you know, as, as potential for getting help. And he says, when you bring them, then we'll talk. Uh, he did, however, point them towards the value of Valor, which was a elven establishment f- to which House Thunderbrand sells or provides provisions, um, magical items. So they go to the value of Valor. Um, which along, you know, in, in, in gaining the information, uh, Grog makes a few jokes about, um, houses of ill repute, uh, making the comment that we'll go see those after, um, they get to the value of valor. They get potions, enchanted arrows. Um, they get some healing potions, some water breathing potions, and a few enchanted arrows, um, and while while paying, uh, Vex tries to give the owner a lower price. Now I don't remember exactly what the I know the end price ended up being forty two thousand gold or forty two hundred gold. Yeah. Um. What was the price she tried to give? She. So it was at that point, it was twenty seven hundred, and she tried to she tried to cut it down to twenty five. Okay, that was that was before they added on more. Arrows that was and before potions. a lot of the, the the arrows and a couple other things were added in. Right. Yeah, and, and and she tried to cut it down low, and Grog corrected her because I think actually Matt, as the GM, had missed the statement, had missed the number, because um, he was just he was focusing on two different things at once. She said the number, he was like, okay, and then Travis. <laughs> I think Travis, seeing Matthew was distracted, corrected Vex in character. <laughs> <laughs> Which, Which is, is a great a perf- little story moment. Yes, it's a perfect moment because with those kinds of characters, the, the, the for lack of a better term, the dumb characters, mm-hmm. um, there's always, you always have to have that great moment where they have one savant like one momentary put flash the numbers of brilliance together. Yeah. yes do quadratic equations or something 
and that was the grog's moment right there mm-hmm. yeah it was the it, you know it was the um uh, Zach Galifianakis uh, gif of him doing like high, highly right. complex magic relations while drunk. You know, uh, just that was that moment for Grog. Right. Um, and that's a that's a that's a that's an effective comedic moment, you know, yep. and I think I think it's it's great, especially when when you have that endearingly stupid character, which Grog fills to a T. Um, which is it's, it's one of those you know recognizable stereotypes that most audiences really do appreciate and and you know forms a level of connection with. Yep. So they finish buying their gear at the value of valor, and they head back to the Iron Hearth Tavern to rest. And the next morning, they head into the mines. Uh, Nostock Gracevine has sent the word ahead to the carvers and other you know uh, other members of the mining community that they're free to pass. So they go on through. Uh, while they're going through, they start doing some, you know, inspections and investigations before getting too terribly far. Uh, and so, so uh, here's something I did want to talk about because uh-huh. they they start immediately looking for clues when they're like five feet inside the mine. Um, which I'm not. Sh- I, I feel like that may have been a miscommunication on their part, not realizing how far they had walked in. Um, and how far they had left to go. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you guys think? Do you think that was an intentional, uh, we're just going to start looking for clues right here in the beginning, or was it a, oh, we thought we were further in than than, than, than we were? I think it was pretty clearly uh, a misunderstanding on, on the player's part. Um, you know, they're thinking they're much further into the mines than they actually are. Um, because I think when when Matthew, as the GM you know, sort of highlighted the the description and was like, no, 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 here's where you actually are. They they sort of all pull back and they're like, oh, okay. I thought yeah, we yeah. were, yeah. Um, so they, they go through, they check out the, for some reason, Vax wants to check out the supplies uh, depot. They go do that. Uh, halfway through the description, Vax says, I've seen enough. There's nothing here. Let's go. Um, which sort of, you know, provides a little bit of characterization. He's not very patient and, 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 but very nosy at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, they take an elevator down uh, to the lower floors of the mine uh, because they know Kima was going to be going down, at which point they start following the, some tracks of some... Uh, they, they'd gone to uh, bits of uh, a location where dwarves had been fighting some of these creatures that were you know, coming out of the ground and coming out of the, the lower levels of the mines. Um, and yeah, that... I think is is an excellent example, you know, because when you when you listen to Matt's detailed descriptions, I think this is one of his strengths as a storyteller and as someone who's constructing a narrative, you know, because before the elevator, you know, he starts talking about uh, as the dwarves are mining, you see these established tunnels that have obviously been collapsed. You see these dwarfs who are removing the corpses of both goblins and dwarves, you know, and so, you know, as the, 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 the protagonists are venturing further into this sort of new setting, um, you know, from a film perspective, you know, this would be a new scene, a new location, uh, you know, downward further and further into the mine as they start shifting through these locations, he's slowly, subtly raising the stakes. These are locations where there has been, there have been fights, where there have been fatalities, where where forcible alterations have been made to the environment in order to defend against threats, threats that are being hinted at 
to establish that you guys are going to be facing, you know, high stakes, lethal stakes type of situations the more you go down. Yeah, and this is sort of a very, a very uh, cinematically, this is an establishing shot. Mm-hmm. This is, yes. you know, camera panning along, showing uh, miners working up top, a uh, few minor signs of battles, and the deeper you go, the darker it gets, and the more signs of battles you start to see. Yeah. Um, when they get to what is essentially the front lines, just like the lowest part of the mines where there was still fighting, uh, and they still see dwarves dragging dwarves away or where they had been, um, Vex starts uh, tracking some uh, uh, what looks to be uh, Duragar, dark dwarves, um, mm-hmm. dragging other surface dwarves deeper into the uh, tunnels. And they go for a while uh, following these tracks. Uh, they go for several hours um, following these tracks until it widens out into a cavern, which leads to a river, which leads to a waterfall. And uh, on that note is where they take their break. Right. Over the break. And the tracks that Vex is following are described as kind of weird. You know, you have you have dwarves. I believe he he is he describes some of the dwarves being so dragged yeah, away are, with with no apparent footprints. Yeah. Of so what's there are dragging some footprints. Them. There are some dwarves that are being dragged away with dwarvish footprints, and there are some that are being dragged dragged away with no apparent footprints. Um, there's a sort of a joke about you know people legolising it, but uh, right. the mm-hmm. the implication is that something that doesn't leave footprints is dragging these dwarves. Right, and I think there's even references made to the fact that the dwarves being dragged away, not all of them seem to be dead. Actually, you know, as a matter of fact, no. Uh, they, they he pointedly said that there was no blood. None of the dwarves right. being dragged away were dead. They were still okay. alive. Right. But not necessarily struggling either. No, no they so, weren't struggling. They were so unconscious. you're like, okay, why is – why are these dwarves being dragged away? So obviously they're not going willingly, but they're also not fighting, you know? And so there's this little mystery of, wait, we don't, we don't know entire – you know, this is not a simple explanation. Something more is going on just from his, his descriptive uh, – narrative surrounding the tracks you know and once again that subtle raising of the stakes you know more is happening here than meets the eye quite literally yep and it's it's also a uh a deepening of the mystery too right um, and it's a nice way to hook people in and and it's a great layering i think also of the description you're physically moving deeper into the earth as mm-hmm. the metaphorical mystery is also <laughs> deepening as well and that sort of drawing things down further and further both physically and metaphorically is is a nice i think uh narrative structuring yeah no, absolutely. it's it's a, it that's a classic that was right. you it's know, a classic that, and it works really well yeah it that's you know shakespearean it's also tolkien very tolkien mm-hmm. um, oh yeah mm-hmm. you know it mines makes me moria. think of the minds of moria exactly yeah. the further into the minds they get the more the mystery of what happened in the minds deepens until they get just slightly too far and, and all hell breaks shit gets real, right? <laughs> Speaking of shit getting real, when they get back from the break, they enter the cavern and hear some scaring noises. Uh, there are some uh, some talk of maybe spiders or something. There are some light shenanigans with uh, Tiberius casting light, dispelling light, casting light, dispelling light, casting light, dispelling light, because <laughs> uh, he's not sure if they need light or not. Now, this begs the question of I don't know that 
the players all knew what their characters could do because Uh there seemed to be a lot of them acting like they were blind, even though almost all of them have dark vision. Right. (laughs) I mean, well, that gets into uh, uh, a mechanic stuff in that this was only as far as, unless there was one or two ep- two sessions before, which I don't think there was, this was only their second session, fifth edition. And I don't know exactly what changes were made. That's never been made particularly clear. Um, and I'm not that familiar with Pathfinder. So I'm not sure mm-hmm. what they would know or what they were comfortable with. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't know in Pathfinder if Goliaths had dark vision, but I'm pretty certain half elves did. And that's the thing is I don't even know if if like Goliath and Dragonborn are a thing in Pathfinder. Um, they are. I think they are. Okay. I'm pretty sure they are. Um, um, but yeah, and I can I can consult my books at some point. But yeah. Uh, no. Uh, uh, half elves have low light vision in Pathfinder, not not dark vision. Yeah, and that's um, yeah. Which may be part of where that confusion comes in because basically everything that had low light vision from three five. And Pathfinder got turned into just straight dark vision in fifth ed. And I know um, that in third edition D and E, dark vision meant something very different than low light yeah. vision. Yeah. yeah. Um. But yeah, so there, there was a bit of confusion there, but narratively it didn't really matter. Matt coached them through it pretty easily, um, and they did have at least one. They they did have two characters that don't have dark vision, so there was a need for the light, anyways. Dragonborn mm-hmm. and humans do not have dark vision. Um, so they got attacked by Umber Hulks, which they recognized because they had apparently fought before. Uh, Umber Hulks are these massive, I think they're large, aren't they? Uh, yes, they're a large sized creature, mm-hmm. chitinous, uh, beetle like creatures that can cause confusion, uh, with their gaze. Um, and they attack Percy and Grog, and the fight is in thick. Um, Scanlan is trying to distract things with his singing, as bards are supposed to do. Uh, Vex is knocking an arrow um, and gets confused uh, by the Umber Hulk. Uh, there's a lot of... Um, this is another point where we start to see some of this narrative breakdown and mechanical jockeying for positions starts to, to happen with uh, people insisting that they are looking away, but they're not mechanically looking away and misunderstanding what it means to, uh, what, it, what, what, what the GM means by, uh, are you averting your gaze? And I think part of mm-hmm. this is on Matt for not fully explaining what he meant by that. Right. Uh, until there were several points where it was confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, where, what he means is, are you doing the thing averting your gaze, which means you have disadvantage on your attack, but you're not going to get confused. Um, as opposed to what they were thinking, which was just like glancing, shooting, and then looking away again. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that, I think, is one of the places where, you know, it, it can be pretty apparent that the the narrative purposes are sacrif- from in the game are, in this case, since there's combat, 
narrative tends to take a slight backseat to tactics be- mm-hmm. in in combat situations if you're going to adhere to the rules very strongly. Now, it would be perfectly legitimate for a GM to say, no, I want to run a more narratively focused combat system. So if you're if you're saying, you know, no, I, I feel, you know, as a hunter, <laughs> you know, I could I could <clears throat> shoot by sound and therefore I wouldn't be under disadvantage while avoiding the gaze of an umber hulk. You know, that could be a decision that a certain type of GM would make. But I th- and I think the that, you know, with this new rules system, they were kind of having a little bit of trouble adjusting to the new uh, yeah, uh, conditions that they were that that were being imposed upon them during the combat encounter. Yep. Because as far as I, as far as we were aware, the first episode was the first time they had actually played in fifth edition. Yeah, Correct. I think so. so um, lots of things where there are still sort of holdovers from the Pathfinder game they've been playing for years. Um, so they fight with the Amber Hulks for a while. Um, I'm not sure if there's any big story beats you guys want to touch on during the fight. Um, um, with the Amber Hulks, not particularly during the fight. There's there there are sort of two bookended individual encounters that are sort of mashed into one, but once we get there, there's some things I wanted to highlight. So, they fight with the Umber Hulks for a while, there's some polymorph shenanigans with turning one Hulk into a snail and throwing it off a waterfall. Um, another, um, um, uh, uh, the other Umber Hulk getting torn at by Keyleth, who's in a bear form at the time. Um... Not much narratively happens aside from fighting, 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 fighting. Um, we do see Keyleth start to assert herself a little bit more uh, by, you know, going into bear form and attacking things. And then, mm-hmm. you know, uh, later on getting out of bear form and calling lightning to sort of strike down at people uh, with, with lightning bolts. Um, Scanlan... Uh, sort of gets attacked by an Umber Hulk and this causes uh, Vax to, um, you know, sort of rapidly uh, dispatch this Hulk, you know, just almost reactionarily is uh, yelling, no one touches the gnome as he runs mm-hmm. up, stabs, uh, stab, stab, and kills Re- the Re-establishing that very Hulk. protective aspect, I think, of, of Vax's character. And also sort of reestablishing that the party, sort of how the party views Scanlan as this mm-hmm. uh, this small, weak thing to be protected. <laughs> it's true. Um, like, and, and it sort of applies to why they sort of were bigging him up earlier because uh, it, typically in combat he does not get a lot of uh, damage done, at least up to this point, as mm. far as we know. Um Grog comes over, shoves the dead Umber Hulk off of Scanlan. Tiberius uh, uh, offers to clean him up, but Scanlan decides to wear the Umber Hulk Icker as a warning to others. <laughs> uh, again, Scanlan grabbing this, you know, persona of this indomitable killer that he established previously with uh, the for- with the foreman. Because Scanlan likes to view himself as a threat, and I think that's rooted in the fact that when he, you know, sort of mentally compares himself to the people he's traveling with, you can kind of say objectively, combat-wise, he's not as much of a threat. So he's going to take that extra step to prove that he is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And um, it, I, I think on Sam Regal's part, it's a great character decision for oh, no, the uh, the persona fantastic. he's playing. Yeah, it's great. Yep. I think it's a fantastic decision. Um. During the was it during the fight or after the fight that they noticed the campfire? 
Uh, Matt had mentioned that there before the fight that there was some light off to the right hand side there. Um, so it, it was it was more of a, a reestablishing shot, I think. Okay. Well, so Grog immediately after the fight runs off towards the campfire, followed by Vax and Keyleth. Uh, the group following behind them, um, they find an abandoned campfire, uh, and as they do, a uh, Three crossbow bolts immediately come flying out of nowhere, uh, two of them hitting Grog. At this point, they notice uh, three Duragar and a uh, what comes to be known as an intellect devourer, which is basically a basically a Metroid, <laughs> a, a brain on legs. It's a brain with legs, uh, and it likes to eat other brains. So it, it is quite literally a Metroid. If any of you are familiar with the game Metroid or the creature Metroid, um, the uh, Vax and Vex try to stealth away. Tiberius um, comes charging into the commotion. Scanlan casts a stinking cloud, and the Duragar start hacking and coughing. Uh, but the, the intellect of hour is unaffected. Uh, Grog is, you know, sort of come, goes over towards the sticking cloud to investigate, and this intellect devourer immediately uh, knocks him out effectively. Intellect devourers will uh, devour your intellect, hmm. simply enough. Funny and how that works. Grog, not being the smartest of intellects, is particularly vulnerable to these creatures uh, as they it immediately does so, and Grog just slump, hits the ground unconscious. Which uh, is, I think, a, a very common narrative structure to you know have the weird thing capitalize on the victim that would be most prone to fall subject to mm-hmm. its strengths. Um, establish, you know, it's, it's, it's the Star Trek throwing you completely cut out there, Jack. We heard Star Trek throw, and that was it. I think we may have lost Jack. I think we might have. Well, but yeah, that's sort of a, it's a nice because up to this point, we've seen um, one real kind, a couple different kinds of fights, but they've all essentially been very physical, you know, where, where, the characters have been fairly, I, I don't want to say invulnerable, but they've been fairly had their chance to spotlight and shine. Um, and with a character like Grog, you know, we know what, what kind of a, a person in combat he's going to be, and he's going to be a very formidable one. So it's a great move to see it hit, um, to see him get hit by something that does hit a weakness that I think don't think a lot a lot of people necessarily think of even within even among veterans of D&D. Yeah, no, intellect saves are not ones you make a lot. No. But um, if your stat is but if your stat goes below a 0, you're out. Yep. Um and that's what the intellect devourer does. It reduces your intelligence and uh so Tiberius immediately uh, avenges Grog uh, with a glacial blast, which I'm not familiar with the spell, but I think it's a Pathfinder one. Um, and Vex so. attacks the Duragar, uh, killing it with arrows. Um, the uh, now frightened of the group, uh, the two remaining Duragar uh, begin to retreat. Um, you know, uh, saying in Undercommon, which only one of the party understands, quick back to the master, giving a bit of a hint as to what these Duragar's role is 
uh, in society. And there went Jack entirely. Um, I'm curious to see what Craig does with that, but we'll find out in a minute. <laughs> um, Damn it, Craig. Yeah. Well, uh, so uh, Scanlan attempts to dispel magic on Grog to no effect. Uh, Vex calls out, let one of them live so I can question them. Uh, Percy shoots one of the Duragar, incapacitating them. Uh, Keyleth hits the other one with a lightning bolt. Uh, and Vax uh, runs into the cloud to try to capture the incapacitated Duragar, but is overcome by the smell. Tiberius casts a firebolt at the second one, but misses. Vex shoots it. It falls off the edge of the cliff and into the, ba- and into the cavern below. Vex yells surrender at the remaining Duragar, who is intimidated. And I believe it is roughly there that they call it into the episode. Mm-hmm. Um, so this one, lots of uh, char- so lots of sort of character stuff at the very beginning. Um, not quite as much character building in the combat as there was previously, unless there's anything that no. you want to call out. I mean, uh, in well, particular, not in terms of the combat. I mean, it reinforces a lot of what we had already seen. Uh, Grog is very uh, barbarian esque, for lack of a better term. Uh, sort of rushes ahead a lot. Uh, uh, you get to see you get to see a lot of people have their individual moments. Um, you get to see Scanlan, who was obviously fairly got the big moments in big moment in the last fight. Get to be a little more tactical with the with the, with the sinking cloud, and then. I mean, outside of that, it's it, it it basically just brings back, reinforces those elements that we kind of already knew, which is important. And then it's after that that combat's still going at that point, but it's it's them going after the Durar, trying to trying to leave one alive, where it sort of gets a little more interesting, because you kind of get to see how well. This is D and D. There's only so much that you can do in terms of subdual damage, quote unquote. So they're still hitting them with this, with a lot of the same kind of stuff, but they do change sort of their tactics a little bit. Yeah. And it's interesting to see them try to tackle a challenge when they don't really. Their goal isn't just to lay waste to the weird stitched up Naga or the Umber Hulks because one of their friends' lives could very well be on the line. Yep. Um, yeah, it's, it, it is also very telling that they specifically had to call out leave one alive. <laughs> very much, very much indicates what this party is typically about. This is um, true. It does get a little murder hobby from time to time. Yep. Well, and in D and D, especially, unless you know, there are there are characters that there there is a there is a point there about how there none of them are unwilling to leave right. these people alive. They just don't normally do that, which is no, important. Nor would because, you in that. Nor would most D and D players in that situation. Yeah. Because, well, for some some fairly obvious reasons, they're clearly looking like the enemy at this point yeah yeah well one of the things that i find uh interesting about it is we all you know 
anybody that's played D&D knows that there occasionally you'll get that one character who is the pacifist or who doesn't want to kill people if he doesn't have to. I love that character. That character is perfectly fine. But the problem that runs in with that character is that oftentimes they make that decision independently without discussing it with anybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they get offended or they act upset when nobody else does that thing because Therein nobody the else knows that they're trying to do that. Yes. Um, that, that happens. That happens quite a lot. And Jack is back. I'm not and sure I'm how the back. recording's going to take that, but we'll find out later. Okay. Um, it'll be fun. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that, that, that happens a lot where, uh, a, you know, you'll have somebody playing a paladin and they'll be playing a lawful, stupid paladin and the paladin will, and suddenly in the middle of a combat without having ever brought it up before the paladin will go, no, wait, don't kill that man. He deserves to stand trial while, while the rogue is, has his dagger halfway through the guy's neck. Oh yeah. Um, and that sort of, that this gets a little bit off track of narrative, but, having played those characters before in even more extreme versions of it um, for any, anybody familiar with werewolf uh, the, the world of darkness game. Um, old world of darkness or new world of darkness. Old world of darkness. <laughs> old world werewolf, the apocalypse. Yes. Not WTF. <laughs> um, there is uh, one of the tribes is the children of guy, which my, my absolute favorite tribe among them. And there is actually a flaw that you can take out of the children of Gaia tribe book, uh, Ahimsa, where you are a full on pacifist and there are serious mechanical penalties. If you knowingly take life, anybody familiar with world of the apocalypse knows that's Mm -hmm. not easy to do. No. Yeah. So the challenge is, and the challenge of those characters, and, and this sort of brings it back to narrative, is not only within a role-playing game aspect, but within a narrative base is to take those characters and figure out how they're viably going to fit in an action, essentially what it is, an action fantasy franchise or a, a series, and make it viable and not the character that you want to die every single week. And the way you do that is how they do it. Well, how they have, they've, they have established that if one of them makes a call in combat, they're all going to agree with it at the moment. And they might disagree with it later, but they're going to disagree with it after combat has ended. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is great for narratively structuring disagreements in a party. You know, you you establish, all right, here's how we handle conflict so that, you know, you're not trying to stop and have a huge argument while metaphorically the bullets are still flying. And that usually doesn't work. Now, it can work with some fine tuning, but a lot of times it's difficult. And while while it's fine to have those types of disagreements – Oftentimes, there are parties that will just get stalled with disagreements. We've, we, we, Jeremy and I have been in one recently. That <laughs> yes, just gets true. That just gets stalled because the characters are disagreeing on petty things. Like, uh, I mean, it's still fun, but yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, it, can, it can still be fun. It definitely slows it, down the storyline. There's yeah. no doubt with that. It cuts the so, it cuts the story momentum to a halt. 
so it's very good. We're we're saying this to say that it's it's particularly good that they can yell out "Keep one alive," and the entire party will go with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the end, uh, Jack. I know you dropped out a little bit. Was there anything you wanted to add? Yes, about the um, end I wanted the to talk to you guys fight? about the narrative place of the random encounter and okay. whether or not you think it has uh, any any application. Not from a game perspective, but from a narrative perspective. Because for me, looking at this, I w- from a narrative perspective, I would have tried to tie these two fights better together or separate them further and establish them more clearly as differing narrative aspects. So uh, is there value in it? Absolutely. Is there that that sort of also depends on how you define random encounter because mm-hmm. a random me, encounter right. can be you roll it, but the DM has several thematically appropriate ones that could work, or it might be random. You know, you guys randomly come across it and then I randomly determine it. Those are a lot trickier. Right. I would say in, in from, from my perspective in this episode, especially using these two fights as examples, the Umber Hawks are the random encounter. You know, looking at it, there's no reason in the narrative structure, you know, and not to spoil things for people later on, you know, but, you know, there there is a plot threat happening in the Underdark mm-hmm. where they find themselves right now. The Umberhawks are an environmental threat. They have no connection to the actual villain who's happening here. Um, but they serve the purpose of the Underdark is, in general, a scary place. The Umberhawk fight does a great job of um, illustrating well, that. that. That right there is the purpose of the, the fight. And I don't think that I don't think there's any need to like if you have a uh, if there is a random encounter versus a non-random encounter right next to each other. I don't think there's any need to necessarily tie them together or separate them out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and in this case, I don't think there was a need to because the Umber Hulk fight serves a specific purpose of mm-hmm. indicating how dangerous this area is by itself. And then you encounter the things that make the uh, area slightly more dangerous because not only is the Underdark not only does the Underdark have natural enemy, natural creatures that will try to kill you that you should probably avoid, it also has these very specific creatures that are the ones you're hunting. Um, so, it, well, and it, I think it informs not only it, it informs not only the group but also the audience that this is not a safe place. Yeah, mm-hmm. in any sense of the word. Right, and I think it also serves another narrative purpose in that. Having these two encounters come at, come back to back allows Matt to uh, make the Durgar uh, intellect of our fight still one that's a physical threat because it comes so quickly without yeah, having to raise the stakes too quickly. I mean, there's there's a definite danger in ramping up your bad guys too quickly mm-hmm. yeah. and having these two come right on on top of each other allowed that to be avoided to where something that let's be honest a few Durgar and a, and an intellect devourer is not going to be a threat for six characters of that that strength yeah. on yeah. their own 
neither but, uh, are two Umber but, Hulks, as we saw. Exactly. But after the res- after the Umber Hulks reduced an amount of their resources, and with their barbarians still in this battle frenzy of not thinking clearly, uh, the second fight did pose a threat because he's you know he's charging off by himself, and then all of a sudden, intellect boom. devour and Duragar, boom, boom, boom. Now right. it's a threat where it wasn't mm-hmm. necessarily previously. Yeah. But I definitely agree with your your statement, Jeremy, that there's there is danger in ramping up your bad guys too quickly. Oh, yeah. You know, um you don't need to look any further than say supernatural, uh as an example. <laughs> <laughs> to to you know, That's that T V good... show to to see that 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 problem well, of where do you take a narrative when power creep becomes an innate aspect of well, the narrative it's... that you establish. Not Twelve. even like uh, not even not even with power creep. There's a diff, there's a danger in a, in in a lot of different ways. Uh, the uh, ABC series Forever, um, which yeah. was only only ran one season, but they introduced and it was very much gone too soon. But they introduced the big bad villain on episode one mm-hmm. and introduced all of the things that he's capable of doing and why he's interested in the main character. And, you know, the fact that he is a very credible and dangerous threat to the protagonist on episode one. And then in episode two, he doesn't appear at all. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I mean, you can, there's this, there's this issue of you have the stakes meteorically high in the very first episode and then pitifully small in the second one. Yeah. So right. that and and that has nothing to do with power creep. It just has to do with what sort of an impact these two characters have on each other's world. Absolutely. Right. Whereas I would say through. Supernatural is the opposite end of that spectrum, where the villain that in season one is astronomically threatening. You know, by season. Well, I would say season way too Five. soon. They're just chewing them up and spitting them out every week, you know. And yep. it's like, why? But I thought this was supposed to be scary, guys. Where's the consistency? Yeah. You know, right? I mean, you can go through. We could go through show after show after show. And I'm not talking about. I love me some supernatural, but I'm not talking about beater shows. I'm talking about like major, major shows. Buffy had that same problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Angel had that same problem. Yeah. Firefly on, had that problem. Well, Firefly never had the chance to have that op- that problem. <laughs> I mean, um, it did. It did. But, but, you know, even, you know, going back to more of a supernatural level, sadly, and again, I love supernatural, but uh, uh, Heroes. Heroes is a good one personality-wise. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because season one, what are you going to do after Siler? There's there's nowhere there's right. nowhere to go there's up a, from that. There's a, and in trying to do so, they destroyed the show. I was there's a certain say, well, there are there are places listening. to go up from that. They just didn't go there. Well, <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> there's a certain subset of people listening, myself included, that have no idea what you just said. Oh, you've got to watch season one, only season one of Heroes of Heroes. Yeah, tangent tangent avoided. Um, <laughs> and to the point of well, it's related. Yeah, no, but it is related. related but, yeah, mm-hmm. but yeah, yeah. So, so no, I, I think random encounters for, serve uh, serve a very good purpose in establishing the world. Okay. Um, that's what I, that's what I use them for. Like right. the the um, the uh, you know, two episodes ago, Grand Terra, uh, the the shambling mounds you guys fought. Mm-hmm. That was randomly rolled. 
but established the new environment we found ourselves in, the continent yep. of Darlarati, as this is a place that if you're not careful or if you let if you get caught with your pants down, can chew you up and spit you out, even yep. when yep. honestly, yep. if you'd and been prepared, probably wouldn't have. Going further back, uh, the frost turtles you guys fought. Yeah. Yep. Also a random encounter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I also roll random encounters. I roll random encounters and then couch them in a story reason. Yes. Um, I mean, that was a less random encounter because we were out searching for frost turtles. Well, yeah. The reason you were searching for frost turtles was because I had rolled them as a random encounter and couched them in a story reason. Oh, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> yeah. I gave a story reason for the random encounter. little counterintuitive, but you know. <laughs> but it does happen, yeah. But and, – and those two things together, you know, bring to – this episode, in a sense, uh, I would say my next thing that I I wanted to to mention, which is this is the cliffhanger episode, our first cliffhanger episode, mm-hmm. um, you know, where, you know, the, the first episode ends with the sort of, oh, good, we survived. The a Dana has been glove. established. Yeah. Everything's OK. And close curtain, you know, whereas this one is, oh, crap. Our barbarian is catatonic. Uh, you know, we have a prisoner who we don't know what they have to offer and curtain fall. You know, yeah. how do you, would you guys say that this was a more, less or equally effective ending to a well-structured narrative episode? Um, I like cliffhangers. I'm a, I'm a big fan of using them. Mm-hmm. Um, cliffhangers serve a purpose. Um, mm-hmm. And and the purpose of a cliffhanger is to keep your audience coming back for more, right. and to keep them invested. They narratively they are they are a fairly good tool if they're a little sometimes overused. Oh yeah, um, like you don't want to have a cliffhanger every every episode. <laughs> um, but you 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 don't want to, you don't want to have a certain amount of them, and you don't always want to have a cliffhanger on an important thing. You can sometimes have a cliffhanger on an unimportant thing. It's just just you know, just for that little niggling of curiosity, as opposed to a the I need to know now. Right. Um, that being said, in a D and D campaign, the implication is that your players are already going to be coming back. Mm-hmm. So they 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 serve a little less purpose here, but for the episodic nature of the series, I think it was fine. You know, it was appropriately implemented the same way you'd implement it in any other uh, type of story. It's, you know, you know, the party is in danger. Will they be able to save them? Who knows? Turn in next time. Same bat time, same bat channel, you know. Right. Yeah. It was very much that. I'm Mm -hmm. actually I'm going to disagree with you that it has less impact as a and d game because for it, it has the same impact, but for a different reason. When you're when you're coming back to game every every week, or as they've as as, as they've said, a lot of times it would be a month before they game. Yeah. Um, for my for, if, for me personally, my my tabletop group because of weather conditions over the last couple of months, um, until last weekend, we hadn't gamed in like a month plus. Yeah, so. Because of those things, and because you know everything else that gets in the way during the week and whatever, you need something. Ending it with a cliffhanger ends it with a very impactful moment that is a lot easier to remember than 
okay, you guys lay down to camp, you know, camp for the night. I'm going to call game break there. Right. Okay. Yeah, no, I would say, you know, for from a mechanical perspective, sure, it gives the party something to talk about during the interim. It gives them a strong connection and helps them get right back into it when you do return. But from a narrative perspective, I would say it's not always necessary, but still valuable. Yeah, no, no, not definitely. Mm-hmm. Cliffhangers are never always necessary no (laughs) you want to you want to use them sparingly but when used correctly they are very effective yeah and Um, i would say in this case for this narrative that we have structuring especially considering it's the second episode and the first one didn't end on a cliffhanger i feel like this was the right moment for them to to drop it it certainly it certainly ended up being a good moment to do so Mm -hmm. um it's again again you know parties in jeopardy will they be able to save them is pretty much the key like the 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 premium uh cliffhanger yeah. uh set it's it's the stereotypical cliffhanger yeah so that was episode two enter into the gray spine mines uh next week we'll be back with strange bedfellows so be sure to tune into that uh as always you can watch critical role itself thursday evening 7 p.m pacific uh which ends up being like 10 p.m eastern and you can figure it out if you're between those two times um or elsewhere because i know they have a worldwide audience but i'm not going to do the time zone thing for everyone um (laughs) we don't have enough time uh as for us we here at Final Show Films produce a wide variety of content every day of the week. You can check us out our website at finalshowfilms.com. You can also check us out on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash fsfilms. Uh, and you can check us out on 411mania.com, the very place where you can find this podcast and others like it. Jeremy, give us a spiel, please. 411mania.com. We're a pop culture uh, site covering movies, television, some comic books, mu- music, wrestling, ga- video games, mixed martial arts, everything that the 18 to 35 year old fanboy could possibly want to know about in the whole world. And including us. And including us. We provide. Um, so, yeah. Check those, check them out there. We appreciate them for letting us put our articles and content up there. If you'd like to support us financially, you can do so via Patreon. You can do so via the website. Uh, thank you to our $25 supporters on Patreon, Chris Cup for Natonic. Thank you to all of you out there listening, and we'll see you all next time. Say goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. 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 <laughs>